0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and this recording from the 2020 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This session is a debate between Professor Dominic Wilkinson and Professor Julian Savulescu, both from the UHERO Hero Centre for Practical Ethics at Oxford University. The session is moderated by Professor David Isaacs, who also hails from Oxford but who is an infectious disease physician at the Children's Hospital Westmead in Sydney and heads the bioethics program there. Dominic and Julian are debating whether it's ethical to conduct COVID-19 challenge trials in children. It's fair to say that not so long ago we would never even entertain the possibility of a virus challenge trial. COVID-19 has made us put everything on the table for discussion. Join me as Dominic and Julian go down this rabbit hole.
1: I'm going to kick off by presenting the case in favour of uh, what might seem to some people, to a third of you perhaps, uh, a controversial claim that it would be ethical to conduct COVID-19 challenge trials in children. Uh, And I'm going to make an argument based on a set of things that I think in this audience are essentially uncontroversial. So I'm going to start with some basic assumptions. Uh, I don't think... Any, a need for this audience to, to make the case that uh, the COVIDs had a massive impact uh, globally in terms of uh, in terms of numbers of infections, numbers of deaths. Somewhere uh, upwards of 850,000 confirmed deaths from COVID at this point in time. 22 million confirmed cases. A massive economic impact. Um, uh, and I think all of us are aware that that we're waiting for a vaccine in the hope that that will, uh, that will bring this, this uh, global crisis to an end, and the sooner the better. Uh, indeed, uh, one day sooner that a vaccine arrives, even if it uh, would just avert uh, a quarter of the, the daily 5,000 per day deaths, uh, would save over 1,000 lives a week, would save uh, almost 10,000 lives, etc. So uh, the sooner that a vaccine is developed, uh, the, the more lives that will be saved. So, so the first premise of my argument, is something that it, I, I don't really need to defend for this audience, which is that uh, that vaccine studies, COVID vaccine studies in children are ethically permissible. As, uh, as many of you are aware, there are vaccine trials underway in, in various places. Uh, Oxford uh, is, uh, is leading in some ways and uh, developing a vaccine, but there are other, other groups developing vaccines too. Uh, and we're all aware as paediatricians that it's crucial that children are included in vaccine uh, studies because uh, we want children to be able to receive the vaccine. There's good reasons to think that that would be be important in in the response. We'll talk a bit more about that perhaps in the second half of the talk, Uh, and of course it would be totally inappropriate to roll out a vaccine in children without ever having formally evaluated it in children, so so the, the f- and the only way to do that is to do a, a vaccine study in children. So I, I don't think this is going to be controversial to anybody in this audience, that uh, that vaccine studies are necessary, uh, are permissible in children. Uh, obviously, there's work that needs to be done prior to, to, to doing it in children. You're not going to do that first. You're going to potentially uh, give it to uh, adults first. Indeed, that has already happened. Second, I'm going to make a... a, a claim that again for pediatricians is is utterly unexceptionable uh it, which is that at least some children and young people are capable of consenting to treatment and research as for adults so we're, we're all familiar with the the kind of legal concept of gillick competency come, arising from a, a famous uk case uh in the in the 80s 90s um and the concept is that some under 16 year olds, at least not necessarily all, but some uh, have sufficient understanding in t- and intelligence to be capable of making a decision, sufficient maturity to understand what is involved. Uh, and indeed, that forms the basis for uh, adolescent consent to decisions um, in the absence of their parents, in, in some cases, obviously with their parents where, where it's appropriate for that to do so, but often particularly in the context of. Uh, of sexual health uh, and other areas, uh, we accept that young adolescents are capable of consenting to treatment. And that includes, in some cases, consenting to research. Uh, And and I don't need to teach this audience uh, uh, about how to assess GILIP competency. That's that's something that that particularly those who work in adolescent medicine are are going to be very familiar with. Next, I'm going to move on to something uh, that is perhaps a little bit less familiar to this audience, which is the concept of a challenge study. Uh, Dave Isaacs was, was talking about challenge studies for cold vaccines. Challenge studies are not new. Uh, they, in, in fact, the very first uh, vaccine test, Edward Jenner was a form of challenge study. It wasn't terribly ethical. He uh, injected the gardener's son with, uh, with, uh, with cowpox. Um, but there there have been... Subsequently, many entirely ethical and laudable and valuable uh, challenge studies. Uh, they've contributed to the development of the cholera vaccine, to the malaria vaccine that's currently being uh, rolled out in three African countries, vaccine for dengue, vaccine for H1N1. All of these conditions have involved challenge studies. The basic principle of a challenge study, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, is that, uh, is that you deliberately infect a small group of, volunteers with the infectious agent, half of whom have received the vaccine, half of whom have received a, uh, a placebo. Um, and that enables in a very powerful way uh, to see whether the vaccine works. Obviously the, the alternative, the standard uh, way that you do a vaccine trial, a large phase three trial, is to give the vaccine to many hundreds, thousands of, of people, wait for some of them to get the infection. And then to measure whether more of them who had the, who didn't have the vaccine got the infection versus those who did get the vaccine. Uh, and in a context where we are desperate and where we are needing a, a, a COVID vaccine as soon as possible, the great potential for a cha- COVID challenge studies is to accelerate the development of vaccine. And as I've already alluded, um, accelerating by even... Uh, days or weeks would save thousands of lives. Basic ethics of, of challenge studies uh, that uh, the, the benefit is potentially considerable. Uh, it's not simply in accelerating the first phase of, of vaccines. It's also because we will undoubtedly have multiple different vaccines around the world being developed. It is crucial to know which of those are most effective and cost effective. If we then embark on massive um. Crossover uh, uh, head-to-head vaccine trials. It will take us years to know which of those is the best vaccine. Um, again, you can do that very uh, uh, quite quickly with uh, with small numbers in a in a challenge study. You can uh, measure other other elements of the biological uh, of the biology of the illness and correlates of protection to to accelerate uh, other interventions and therapies. Of course, the 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 fundamental issue with the challenge study is that there are risks associated with it that are greater than a simple vaccine study and those are the risks related to COVID-19 and all of the proposals for challenge studies have talked about mitigating that risk to to reduce it to the lowest level possible by selection of those who are at lowest risk, who are at high risk of getting COVID in the absence of a trial uh, and who are monitored very closely and provided with the best available treatment and uh, uh, this this uh, figure, which comes from the organization One Day Sooner, which are uh, strongly advocating for the development of challenge trials for COVID, uh, looks at the, the, the spectrum of outcomes for young, otherwise healthy adults, uh, who are those who, who are being proposed uh, at present for COVID challenge trials. Of course, the the risks at stake in the ethics are also the risks if we don't do the challenge trials. That's the flip side of the benefits of the trials. Uh, And importantly, in terms of the ethics, the central question is, is this a risk that those who volunteer for the trial are willing to take on board? So uh, yes, this is a risk that many people wouldn't choose to take. Um, And of course, uh, nobody is suggesting, although we have the two topics side by side, nobody's suggesting that COVID challenge studies Should be mandatory. This would be an informed autonomous decision um, to take part. And of course, we we think that individuals should be free to make choices uh, about the risk that they take on, that all sorts of risks that people take on in their everyday life. So the basic argument is this, that COVID challenge studies are ethical as long as the risk to participant is sufficiently low and the participant gives informed consent. And in combination with that, that some young people are indeed at lower risk than adults. I haven't presented you with the data, but the the, the risks for um, adolescents uh, and children are significantly lower than for young adults of, of serious complications from COVID, and that at least some young people are just as capable of giving informed consent as adults. And on that basis, uh, I think it would be ethical to conduct COVID-19 challenge t- trials in children. It w- it's worth saying, I don't think it would necessarily apply uh, in all parts of the world. So in parts of the world where the baseline risk of, of, con- of contracting COVID is very small because uh, COVID has been eradicated or, or avoided, uh, hopefully Australia will be in that position very shortly. The UK is not in that position. Um, in, in those situations where the, the risk of, a tra- of getting COVID in the absence of the trial is very small, um, the, ri- the risk balance is, is quite different. Because this argument might, in, in a sense, be too easy, uh, I'm just going to present an extension, which I don't need to do, but I'm going to present an extension um, to, to suggest that it would also be permissible for 8 to 12-year-olds uh, to, to take part in, in a trial, assuming that they are sent to participate and they give an ample opportunity to opt out. We don't think normally that 8 to 12-year-olds can consent on their own to medical treatment or to involvement in research. But we do allow their parents to make decisions on their behalf. Um, uh, And in in this context, as long as the the young person themselves self agrees. We also allow parents to take some reasonable risks with their children. Uh, So just to put it in context, there is about a one in 8,000 annual risk of dying in a car. As a a passenger, it's somewhere in the order of uh, one in 17,000 risk uh, of a child dying per year as a passenger in a car, so if we allow parents to impose that risk on their children to take on board that risk for good reasons, obviously there 's benefits to going in a car to, to transport in a car, then for consistency reasons, we ought to allow parents to potentially take on board that risk for good reasons and with the agreement of the child uh, the risk for a uh, for a child from COVID of dying is of the order of one in 100,000, um, and significantly less than the risks that, uh, that children face each year from being passengers in cars. So I think on that basis, it would be ethical to conduct COVID-19 challenge trials in children. Thanks very much.
0: You do present a compelling argument that uh, if we didn't have another speaker, we might follow you down the rabbit hole. Dom, I just wanted to clarify, though, um, are you talking about a challenge trial purely in the context to assess the efficacy of a vaccine, or are you thinking about a challenge trial more broadly to understand the natural history of COVID or to uh, test for therapeutic uh, options? Well,
1: it, it... I think the, the, the particular urgency is in the development of vaccine. And for that reason, I think the ethical case is strongest for, uh, for including children in a COVID-19 vaccine study. Uh, obviously, if, the, if, if young people were to agree, if their parents would, were on board as well, and they were going to participate in such a study, you would have the opportunity to also be, uh, be evaluating, for example... Uh, the the biological responses and correlates of infection uh, and potentially also uh, the efficacy of some treatments.
0: All right, Um, well, why don't we hear from Julian and uh, see if he can uh, sway us. Julian. Okay, thanks very much, uh,
2: John. I wanna start by saying that I agree with a lot of things that Dominic has said, Um, and I've written many articles defending challenge studies. but I think conducting a challenge study in children would be a stupid design and, and unethical, even though I'm currently supporting one day sooner to to do challenge studies. Um, most of Dominic's talk, however, was irrelevant and not in the spirit of the debate. We're not debating about whether competent children could could consent to take part in a challenge study. Um, it's not about whether young people or adolescents can, uh, should be involved in challenges. It's about children, and, and typically children can't consent. So the debate really is about whether um, we should do challenge studies on, on children who are incapable of consenting. And the last few slides of his were, were the only relevant part to that debate. And, in fact, he failed to give the strongest argument, which I will give, in favour of using young children... Uh, and then I'll show why that is a bad design. So, uh, it, but in order to proceed, I need to sort of outline some philosophical concepts that, that people fail to understand in research ethics and have dominated major scandals in, in research ethics. Um, and the essential concept is, is one of expected harm. So expected harm is the probability of a harm occurring multiplied by the magnitude of the harm occurring. And it's essential part, in fact, it's the most fundamental part of research ethics to ensure that the risk in research is reasonable. And that means two things. First of all, the risk is minimized. That is the expected harm is as small as possible. And the harm is proportionate to the benefit. So I've been banging on about this concept for over 20 years. um, And and I think it's, it's important to understand how important it has been in research ethics. So In 1999, um, a young man, Jesse Gelsinger, an 18-year-old with a a genetic disorder, OTC deficiency, um, took part in a gene therapy trial. Now, his disease had been managed by just diet and drug therapy and had a normal life expectancy. Um, And unfortunately, he died four days after the trial commenced, and this was one of the biggest scandals in in research ethics. At the time the trial was designed, the question was, should this be done on people with the mild version of the disease like Gelsinger with a normal life expectancy or on newborns who have a severe form of the disorder which is fatal in the first year of life? And um, the the advice that Art Kaplan, a bioethicist gave um, James Wilson, the head of the Gene Therapy Institute was that essentially because there are serious risks involved, we should involve humans who could consent rather than those who can't consent. And in fact, Art Kaplan is right. That's what the Declaration of Helsinki says. Um, But I'm not going to rely on that because I, I don't want to just appeal to authority. And in fact, I think the Gelsinger case showed a wrong experimental design. And the reason for that is Gelsinger essentially lost 60 or 70 years of healthy life whereas a newborn would have lost one year at most. And there's no good reason to to prefer more harm rather than less, even if somebody's prepared to consent to it. So to put it simply, the expected harm of designing a trial with an adult like Gelsinger was much greater than the expected harm in designing a trial with newborns. So we have to balance the value of autonomy and consent against minimising expected harm. And now we fast forward to He Jiankui and his gene editing experiments, and exactly the same mistake was made. So he used two healthy embryos with a normal life expectancy to expose them to the risks of gene editing for no necessary benefit to them. So I'd describe this experiment as monstrous. But if he'd used... Um, embryos with a lethal disorder like Tay-Sachs disease, um, then the expected harm would have been far less and the benefits more proportionate. In fact, it could have been a life-saving experiment. So it was unethical, not because it involved gene therapy, but because it failed to minimize expected harm. And so I've outlined this translational pathway for research into gene editing. So how does this relate to challenge studies? Well, we have to balance expected harm against autonomy, and we should choose a design which minimises expected harm. So what are the risks to different age groups um, of of doing a challenge study which is potentially lethal? I'm using these figures, which I think are are very bad, but they are the influential figures from Neil Ferguson who were based on Chinese data. And I think they're probably out by a factor of 10, but they don't matter for the purposes of this argument. So they stratified risk according to age group, and I won't go through these in detail, but assume that a a person is going to live to 85 years. The risk of dying from from COVID-19 for a five-year-old is 0.0016% according to um, Ferguson's um, data. So that means they expect to lose by taking part in a challenge study on average 0.00128 years. And that risk is about the same as dying from chickenpox. Now, as I mentioned, that's probably an inflated figure of risk. So the first thing to note is children have nothing to gain from COVID vaccines themselves. In fact, the chickenpox vaccine, at least in the UK, is, is not even freely available. however, they would have a very low risk of dying in a challenge study. So compare that to an eight-year-old where the risk of dying is 7.8%. And although they'll only live for another five years on average, they expect to lose two orders of magnitude greater um, life uh, as a result of taking part in a challenge study. And compare that to a 29-year-old where there's a 0.03% risk of dying and again, that's even one order of magnitude higher than a five-year-old. So the strongest argument along the lines of the Gelsinger case for using children in challenge studies is they expect to, there's a, they've got the lowest chance of dying and the expected harm is the least. So this would imply that we should do challenge studies um, on children. However, if you look at the confidence intervals around these figures and take the upper bound for a five-year-old child, um, you'll come out with an expected loss of 0.02. And the lower bound for a 29-year-old, you'll come out with a much lower expected loss. So the point is that the confidence intervals for a five-year-old and a 29-year-old around the probability of dying overlap significantly. We just don't have enough data. So it's possible that they may lose they may have roughly similar chances of dying, and in such a case, we should give weight to autonomy. We should enable people to choose for themselves, and for that reason, one day sooner and I have both argued that we should conduct challenge studies not in children but in twenty to twenty nine year old or, or twenty to thirty year old um, young adults because they have a very low risk of dying but are also capable of consenting for themselves. Um, So a challenge study, I think, is certainly um, ethically permissible and probably required, um, but not in young children. We should use young adults rather than children.
0: Thank you, Julian. Uh, Well, there's lots of uh, good thoughts there to compare with Dom. Uh, David, did you want to say something at this point?
3: thanks very much. so um, as far as I can see, Dominic has told us that speed in developing a vaccine i 'm going to make the assumption that we 're doing these challenge studies mainly to test the vaccine so we 've given the child the vaccine um, just like Jenna did to little James Phipps when he was eight years old, and then we 've um, challenged the person that has been immunized we 've challenged them with the live virus itself. So Jenner got smallpox and injected it into James Phipps. 20 times, actually, he did it, just to make sure that, um, that he really had got immunity. Um, and as you said, Dominic, J- um, James Phipps was the son of his gardener, so no conflict of interest there at all, and got through the um, the 1798 Ethics Committee as well. Um, and you said that speed saves lives and that therefore it's, that's one argument for it. And so the quicker that we can develop a vaccine, the better. And so that's an argument certainly in favour of challenge studies in general. You're arguing that Gillick competent children can give consent, although you're also saying that eight to 12 year olds, their parents can give consent for them, or you're suggesting possibly they can give consent for them to be in these challenge studies. And you say that challenge studies can be ethical as long as the risk is low enough and that if people can give valid consent. And finally, you're saying that children are lower risk than adults from COVID-19, which you're using as an argument for giving it to them. Um, Now, Julian told us very interestingly about expected harm being probability of harm multiplied by the magnitude of the harm, which is a really interesting concept. And I really liked what you were saying, Julian, about the Gelsinger case. For a while, I thought you were going to argue then in favour of immunising, sorry, challenging children, as you talked about the lower risk. But then you said, oh, confidence intervals are such that really we should respect autonomy um, and not use children in challenge studies. The one thing that I did want to bring up in this is that my concern in a vaccine for COVID, and of course we haven't got a vaccine yet, but my big concern as an infectious disease specialist is that the vaccine might actually increase your risk when you meet the wild type virus. And Now that happened historically when we used killed measles virus in children and they got nasty uh, measles pneumonitis when they were exposed to measles, a sort of immune mediated measles. Um, it was also happened with a killed RSV vaccine, and those children, when they were exposed to wild type RSV, got more severe disease, and there were actually some deaths. These are studies back in the 60s, but even more recently than that, there's been the dengue vaccine, a killed vaccine, used in the Philippines, and then subsequently augmented disease when they met wild type dengue and that caused a huge loss of confidence in vaccines in the Philippines and a resultant measles outbreak because children weren't getting measles vaccine because parents were so scared about vaccines generally. Um, So one of my concerns about a COVID vaccine is that it might actually augment disease and if that's the case You could argue that doing challenge studies is an important way of unveiling that because you will then expose people who've been immunized to the disease much quicker and so that will bring out what might be a really important thing so that if you've only got a a relatively small incidence of enhanced disease that should come out much quicker in, in a challenge study or a large enough challenge study compared with letting it happen naturally. Um, immunizing people and then seeing what happens later on. And I wonder if both of you wouldn't mind just saying, how do you think that alters your argument about whether it's ethical to do challenge studies in children specifically? I do think that means it's ethical to do challenge studies in adults, which were probably ethical anyway. But what would you say about that risk of, of, unveiling enhanced disease caused by wild type on top of the vaccine
0: Tom um, why don't you go first
3: yeah so I mean I, th- I think the, the
1: essential uh, the essential challenge ethical challenge uh, that people have to get their heads around with the, with the challenge study is that you will be causing harm to those to a small group of those who who participate uh, but in order to prevent harm to a larger number of other individuals. Now, you might do that in a number of different ways. You might do that by uh, causing a small group of individuals to get COVID and prevent a larger group of other individuals from getting COVID in the future. You might do it because you actually demonstrate that uh, uh, a vaccine that is uh, thought to be effective is actually harmful or ineffective. So, in a in a small group of, of children, for example, you demonstrate that in children, it doesn't work, uh, rather than giving it to thousands of children unnecessarily and, and then demonstrating in six months' time that actually this was a total waste of time and we needed to, to do something else. So uh, I, I don't think it changes anything in terms of the, that kind of overall balance. It's one of the, the things that those who participate in the trial should be aware of. Uh, we, we're very familiar that, that research participants sometimes uh, are overly optimistic about the benefit of a a trial intervention, uh, and they should be very carefully counseled. I I think it's it's worth saying, I don't think there are going to be very many parents who are going to be putting their child forward for a COVID challenge study. But if they were, and if the child were willing to take part, I mean, think of all the young people who are out there really passionate about climate change, the impact on our world, Uh, really wanting to make a difference. There are are going to be young people out there who are going to say, look, I'm going to to school right now. My children start back at school. I'm going to get COVID this winter. I'm sure of it. If I'm going to get it, I want to get it. I might as well get it in a controlled way and contribute to getting a vaccine soon.
0: Julian.
2: So I think it strengthens, you know, your point about that, you know, accelerating disease strengthens the argument not to use children. Um, because children have very little to gain from a vaccine um, and, and they have nothing to gain themselves from, from being in a challenge study. So when we've got alternative designs that mean that people can consent and take on those risks themselves, and, and in fact, will lose less, we should choose that design. It doesn't make, it doesn't, there, if there were a, a reason for children to participate. So, for example, we were worried about special risks in vaccinating children. That might be a reason to involve children in challenge studies. But from what you said, um, we could gain an understanding of accelerated disease in in looking at 20 to 30-year-olds who can agree to those. Now, the fact that a parent will put their child forward for a small risk for a societal gain, in my view, is not a good reason to do that. We we have to we, we shouldn't be taking small risks with children when we can avoid them, um, and we have a perfectly valid design using older participants in this case um, that will give us the scientific knowledge we need without exposing young children using young children. And I mean, a, a further point is, you know, children have been used in in this whole you know um, lockdown strategy. Essentially, a vaccine is going to benefit people over the age of 60 or 50. Um, that's why we're doing it. Um, so really, in terms of, of uh, justice, there's an argument for doing the challenge studies and the people who are going to benefit most from it. Now, I haven't gone down that route, which you could, um, but I think we can certainly, if 20 to 30 year olds or 30 to 40 year olds want to consent, we don't need to do it on children. There's no good reason to expose them to the risk.
0: All right, well, <laughs> Probably need some some questions, um, but I, I, I thought I might just throw in as chair's privilege, perhaps to uh, well, when it sort of comes to both because uh, John, you had written some challenge test criteria in uh, in a paper a few years ago, and you laid down some criteria which I think is nice for ethical practice. And you mentioned that uh, it needs to be an important question, important knowledge. I don't think we doubt that. The next is there have to be no alternatives to the challenge and. Yeah, um you mentioned there are alternatives for the child uh, i.e the young adult consenting um but I, I suspect that there's enough covid still in lots of countries that you that that's an alternative to understand the disease and then a key and it comes up again is about consent and you know a lot of i thought a lot of both arguments were really discussed capacity to consent Uh, and valuing autonomy perhaps against a global consequentialist numbers argument but it's the informed bit that gets me because in in a way you're playing god and 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 what that means is that you don't know all the outcomes and julian you've only nominated one outcome which is death but there may be many other outcomes including long-term vascular complications and other complications that are emerging but we don't fully know and so i'm not sure how Anybody could be informed uh, about the risks of catching COVID and what it might mean long-term. Julian, do you want to answer that first? Because it's your criteria. I think think that's a a
2: very good point and and one that needs to be factored in and, again, counts against um, involving children because we just talked about death. And you're completely correct. There can be long-term complications Um, but there have been a number of of points in the thread about, you know, the sooner the better. And, and I both, I think both Dominic and I agree that there is, you know, time is lives in this matter. So it's not just a matter of conducting a, a study. It's a matter of getting results as quickly as possible. And that's the reason for the challenge study, you know, you, you could do, you know, for example, we don't have enough people getting COVID in the UK to actually do the vaccine studies in the conventional way, that's why Adrian Hill wants to do challenge studies. Um, you can go to other countries, uh, and then you face objections. You're exploiting the population, um, but even there, it takes m- much more time to do a challenge study. Even say in Brazil or Venezuela, where there are you know challenge studies of or as vaccine studies of the Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine. So, so the reason for the challenge study is that yes, there are alternatives, but they will deliver answers slower. Now, can you consent to the risks? That's a very good question. And I, my view is that provided that we're honest with people about the limitations of our knowledge, about the possibility of long-term complications, about how much we don't know, as, as well as the, the, the limitations in the confidence of what we do know, people can make an autonomous decision. After all, you know, most areas of life, we can never precisely specify the risks. You you decide to climb a mountain and you evaluate the risks on the basis of the weather and totally unexpectedly the weather changes. You You can't give certainty and you can't also give accurate probability estimates. There'll always be a second order uncertainty. So I think I think you know adults can make those sorts of autonomous decisions, but I think the real issue in delivering a vaccine or in developing a vaccine is going to be to be bulletproof, honest about the limitations of what you know and the possibility of of, of serious consequences that we haven 't foreseen I
3: don't
0: have a, a number on <laughs> on the things you don't know about, Joel, and it looks, could be hard to be a, a consequentialist without being able to just do maths, um, but I might be taking a swipe or a snipe there. Uh, Joel, uh, uh, Don, what do you think? Can, can you be informed, really? Well, I mean, we so, don't even know the vaccine works. You're assuming the vaccine works. So it's not only can you not be informed about the illness, you can't be informed about whether the vaccine works or not.
1: Well, so I think it's a mistake to, to think that we need... ..we need to know the facts of what's going to happen to make an informed decision... There are all sorts of decisions that we make in everyday life where we don't know what the outcomes are going to be. To, have, to make an informed decision, you have to know the information that is known about the decision. So, if somebody somebody uh, joins the army, for example, they don't know whether there's going to be a military conflict. They take on knowing that there are significant known and unknown risks. There are going to be unknown, knowns, unknown, unknowns, all all those different varieties. And um, so, uh, of course. Uh, an adult can make an, uh, an informed decision, if, as long as they're given, as Julian points out, a, a full and fair um, understanding uh, of, of what the current risks are and what the possible uh, currently unknown risks might be of, of participating in a trial. Um, if, we, if we're focusing on children, the question is, can their parents make an informed decision for them to be involved in a trial? And of course, we again think that parents can make informed decisions um, uh, for all sorts of medical procedures, including experimental procedures. I know Julian's in favour of uh, parents uh, having access to experimental treatments for for children, um, where the effects are are often radically unknown. Uh, can they give informed consent in that situation? Of course they can. Um, so so I, I think it's a mistake to to point to the uncertainty. The other thing, of course, is that those same uncertainties. Um, are the ones that, that all of us are facing about the risks that we, we and our children are facing in the coming uh, months and potentially longer.
0: Thanks, Dom. So we've got some questions from the audience.
4: Uh, well, we do. If I could possibly just jump in with a, a question, probably more for Lynn, without putting you on the spot too much, because <laughs> Thanks, I'm, I'm just thinking about this whole idea about uh, parents being able to commit their otherwise healthy child to... Um, some kind of a challenge trial like this, whether in the context of this hospital, we would sort of put it through um, the lingulum zone of parental discretion as to whether the parents actually have the right to commit an otherwise healthy child. I take Dom's point, but parents committing their children to experimental treatments is usually when they are already sick or unwell or suffering from a condition um but if we're asking parents to take their healthy kids i'm not going to say from the schoolyard because they're all at home um, but bring them into the hospital and sign them up for a trial with some very unusual or unknown side effects um not only is it not necessarily informed consent but is it something that we would feel comfortable
5: allowing the parents to do Um, Thanks, Georgina. And the fact that they're not in the schoolyard and at home is actually really (laughs) pertinent to my response to that. So zone of parental discretion is about um, the parent's decision put the child at risk. And what I'd like to do is pick up on some of the comments in chat. Uh, There's one from Danny Gold and another from Deb Gilmore, um, really pointing out that what's at stake for children is not just physical or medical risk and benefits. So children have got um, a lot to gain uh, from there being an effective vaccine in terms of being able to go back to the schoolyard and and back to um, a lot of things that are important for their long-term well-being um so i don't think it's as simple as just what those what the physical risks might be parents may well say look the reasonable chance to you know physical risk is really small there's a lot to gain socially and developmentally and that's worth it so I'd be interested to hear the pan- the um dom and julian's response to to that should we factor in the um the social and developmental benefits to children of having a vaccine
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we should, and and I see some comments uh, on the chat to that effect. So I I think children do um, have an indirect interest um, because the government has decided to make a policy that seriously disadvantages them, which they don't need to do. Um, But given that they have done that, they have a serious interest in a vaccine being developed. Um, But it's just that vaccine can be developed without doing challenge studies in them. It can be developed by doing challenge studies in 20 to 30-year-olds. So I think we've got more reason to allow people to volunteer or I think also be paid a lot to take part in challenge studies um, of their own choice rather than doing them on children. So, yes, they do have indirect benefits, but that doesn't mean they should be taking part in challenge studies.
1: What's Dom think? so, um, So one thing that's really interesting to think about is how does the baseline risk that a child is exposed to affect the risks that we allow parents to, to opt for in a child? So, so there's an interesting debate about whether, for example, a child in a developing country whose everyday risks that they run of serious illness and, uh, and of dying, in fact, are much higher than a, than a child in a developed country whether in those places it would be ethical for, parent, for, for them to be enrolled in a more risky trial. So imagine two countries, uh, the, the baseline risk is, is low. In Australia, the baseline risk is very high. In, um, in rural Africa, does that mean you can run your risky trials in Africa because the child will otherwise be exposed to those risks in every day? That looks to be problematic, particularly if we were going to be testing interventions that we wanted to use in the developed world on our uh, on the those in the developing countries so there are there are risky guinea pigs but in this situation the risk that we're talking about is a risk that the children are facing in their everyday life a- across the world It's in, in my it's the risk that my children are facing going back to school today there are increasing numbers in the UK that the the risk that children in the US are facing uh, and, and and elsewhere that uh, this is a, a widely prevalent risk, it's, it's entirely reasonable for parents to say, um, uh, it's not simply a question of imposing that risk, it's a question of shifting that risk from some possible time in the, in the, in the few coming months to now in controlled circumstances in a place where the child will be very closely monitored and will be potentially given a vaccine. So it, it looks to be clearly something that's within the zone of parental discretion.
0: All right. Well, well, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Julian, and to the panellists. We've had uh, lots of good questions. I think it's time to go to the poll. So we want to look at that first question that we asked at the beginning. We had very mixed answers. Lots of don't knows. So would it be ethical to conduct COVID-19 challenge trials to test the efficacy of a vaccine, I'm going to put in there, in children?
5: Uh, and, John, where I think meaning this includes children whose parents need to consent, so not just mature
0: minors. Sure. All right, how are we looking, Gus? There's actually, I think there was 170 people at one stage. This is uh, terrific. What have we got? Ah, less don't knows. Yes. So I think that's very, very good. And so Julian, you look like you've carried the day uh, there in terms of uh, numbers. Thank God for that. (laughs) (laughs) Save, save the children. We're one day closer. Uh, Oh no, we're not. We're
3: further away. What were you going to vote? Me? Yes. You <laughs> said you wanted to vote.
0: I did want to vote. I wanted, I wanted to vote. Uh, no, I think there are lots of other ways to get the same information. And I'm worried. I hadn't thought of your point, David, which is not uncommon. And uh, you did sway me. <laughs> that was Professor Julian Savalescu and Professor Dominic Wilkinson debating the ethics of conducting a COVID-19 challenge trial in children. The National Children's Bioethics Conference is brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. The conference was supported by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you enjoyed the podcast or the conference, please support our work by joining the Friends. The podcast was produced by Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you would like to know more about the Children's Bioethics Centre... Or join us in 2021 for our 13th National Children's Bioethics Conference. Look us up on the website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.